Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today's podcast features a conversation that took place in last week's live salon, and our guest then was Dr. Mike Sapiro, who is a clinical psychologist, meditation teacher, and former Buddhist monk. He is also the founder of Matri House Yoga and is a fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And, uh, well, Mike's work integrates psychology, noetic sciences, non-dual, and Buddhist meditation. So, uh, as you know, we've been fortunate to have some interesting guests join us for our live salons on Monday nights. In fact, our guest tonight will be Daniel McQueen and longtime fellow saloner Kevin Thorbane, who will be discussing a protocol to explore ways to extend both the length and control the intensity of a DMT experience. And next week, our guest in the live salon will be author Eric Davis, who is uh, also the person who conducted the last interview of Terrence McKenna. Following that, uh, my guests will include Dr. Rick Strassman, author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, my old friend and cactus expert, Keeper Trout, and the producer of the movie, Dosed. So if you'd like to sit in on any of those conversations and uh, maybe even ask a question of your own, well, I'd be happy to see you there. And if all goes well, you'll be able to hear a recording of those evenings get-togethers. In fact, uh, that seems like what we should do right now. So please join me and uh, a few dozen of our fellow saloners, some from as far away as New Zealand and Canada, and uh, see what we can learn about the differences and similarities between meditation and a psychedelic experience. I hope that you learn as much as I did when this conversation first took place. Welcome, glad to hear you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And and you're coming to us from from Boise, right? Yeah, Boise, Idaho. Boise, Idaho. You know, Idaho is one of the few states I haven't been to. Well, not one of the few. So I've been to over half. But uh, how did you wind up in Idaho from Illinois? Well, oh, Illinois. That's a long, long route. So after <laughs> Illinois, Portland. Um, after Portland, went to Thailand for Peace Corps back to Portland, California, Alaska, and finally Boise. I did my fellowship here, postdoctoral fellowship at the VA. Ah. I've been really clearly instructed to tell everyone how terrible Idaho and Boise are, so no one keeps moving here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we used to say that about Southern California, but due to the earthquakes, we don't have to say that anymore. (laughs) I'm sure people still go. I'm I'm itching to move out there, too, so... (laughs) But, you, you know, uh, we, we actually have somebody here from Portland, too. And, uh, you know, your your uh, route from Illinois is about as uh, circuitous as mine has been. Plus, you were you were uh, born and you were raised in Chicago, right? Yes, yes, right. And, of course, I grew up in Elgin, which, uh, you know, we always said Chicago because nobody ever knew where Elgin was. But uh, uh, so we're both from uh, sort of the Midwest boys, I guess. And uh, you and I are two people here who have no accents. (laughs) Uh, Actually, I got a little bit of Chicago on Chicago. (laughs) Well, see, we don't like to admit the Chicago accent. (laughs) Hey, if the Blues Brothers are around there, I'm okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I was a big Blues Brothers fan. And and as I I mentioned in an email to you, uh, you uh, graduated from Illinois State originally, right? Yeah, that my bachelor's and my first master's was from Illinois State. And that's that's my aunt, who was sort of my my second mother. I, we lived in her house. Uh, she she got her teaching certificate from Illinois State in I think the 1920s, sometime. So, uh, but she was one of the most significant people in my life, and so I've always had a fondness for that part of the state. <laughs> Well, I've enjoyed it and glad to be out of it at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really uh, go back anymore. I went back to my 50th high school reunion, but that was about it. Uh, so uh, haven't haven't made it since then. Uh, but you you now have uh, you've you've done such a uh, had such a varied career, and I've got some specific things we want to get into here in a little bit. But uh, maybe we can just start out with you, uh, you know, telling a little bit about. Uh, where you are now and what you're doing in your practice, and then we'll kind of work backwards into how you got there. Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist by trade. 
I also am a meditation researcher at the Institute of Noetic Sciences up in Petaluma. And I'm on faculty at Esalen Institute, so I teach courses out there. My main work is um, clinical psychology, seeing patients. So I see, you know, 20 to 25 people a week. I lead a sangha, a Buddhist sangha here in Boise. And so that's where I spend most of my time. Then I will travel to Esalen or up in Petaluma and do work out there or travel to teach around the country. Teaching meaning offering workshops and retreats, integrating the Dharma, non-dual teachings, science and psychology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's quite a, a varied uh, slate of interest. And, uh, you know, Esalen rings a, a warm bell. I, I only uh, was there one time, but uh, Bruce Damer and I gave a, a workshop there in uh, 2012 and uh, found it to be a very delightful place. It still is. Every time I get little tears of gratitude that I, I'm able to teach there, it's such a, an amazing tapestry of people who have created um, Esalen and the history of Esalen is Fantastic. Even before it became Esalen, uh, with the peoples, the Esalen people, how they tended to the land. So there's a really rich history there. And I know it, it, it was such an instrumental part of transforming the culture in the 60s and 70s. So I do get a little bit that heart swell when I get to be there thinking of who, who was on that campus teaching and kind of changing the minds of, of American, uh, the American populace, really. Well, you know, your background certainly fits into the uh, Esalen uh, uh Standard. In fact, uh, you you uh, now you were once a Buddhist monk for a short time. Yeah, I've studied for 22 years, and um, I did eight years of Zen. I was a lay resident for a year, and then moved to Thailand for the Peace Corps. And um, I got permission from my Zen teacher to change to the Theravadan tradition, and I've since been there for in that tradition for 14 years. And a part of my training was ordaining as a monk and living in the northern hemisphere, uh, the northern part of Thailand. Um, That was obviously rich and rewarding. I wouldn't say super challenging because I didn't keep the robes on that long, but the the amount of change that came from just doing that experience, I was able to stay in a cave for a week. And I, I can return to that cave now anytime I want, and they let me practice meditation or I bring groups to Thailand. My wife, who is Thai, also a chef, uh, we lead cultural immersion trips to Thailand staying with host families, meeting monks, deep practice in the forest. And so that cave has still significance for me. Mm-hmm. What, what was that like living as a monk? You know, that's something that, that I know many of us have been uh, not necessarily tempted to, but we've thought about. And, and uh, is that, do you, do you really feel uh, like you're giving up a whole lot of things or do you feel like you're getting more from it? Man, there's a no end to the getting and receiving because things quiet down so much that, the vastness of the universe becomes much more palpable and present in the feelings in your body, the sounds and vibrations and the spaciousness, which comes allowed me to tend to so much more of myself than I usually do in a very limited way because I'm busy, I'm working, I'm tending to other people. And so really being quiet in the forest allowed me to really tend and nurture this body and this being, which really longed for it. Most of us long for that kind of nurturance and self-care. We think self-care is just exercise, eating healthy, but it's also about really nurturing ourselves deeply. And being a monk allowed me to start doing that in a way I I couldn't quite do uh, being so busy in the States. Even though I even lived in a temple, I still couldn't do it as well there. Well, you know, in a, in a way, your uh, focus on, on meditation and the meditation practice is sort of a continuation, in my eyes, of, of the Buddhist experience in that you do kind of uh, move yourself away from the hustle and bustle of the day and get into a, a quiet place. The hope is that what I, I call bringing the forest to the city. I live in a small city. I travel to L.A., San Diego. I travel to San Francisco how do I bring the forest into the city? And that's, that's, it's a challenge for most of us who have meditation practices and travel. And how do we bring the quiet simpleness of the forest or a village into our daily lives? And it's really important to have, you know, a kind of discipline and in really earnest, wholehearted, heartfelt practice that we can rely on to bring our self back down to that quiet that we might find in the forest or the village. Yeah. You know, that, uh, one of the, the things that uh, 
uh, caught my attention when I first learned of you is that you are one of the few people I've ever encountered who uh, was, was, you know, a serious student of Buddhism uh, who has not just totally uh, refused to even mention the word psychedelics. I know uh, I've, I've had a lot of friends who were, were very uh, sincere, uh, dedicated Buddhists, and, and at, most of them found it, found meditation and Buddhism through psychedelics, but then they, they didn't want to talk about it. And I can understand that. I, I, you know, I certainly understand that. And I don't really think there's a, there's a way that you can get some sort of a peaceful experience in psychedelics, but nothing like what comes from, from meditation mm-hmm. and uh, that you can't get the stillness that you get in meditation. Mm-hmm. However, you know, I've had two mentors, one a life mentor and the other was my psychedelic mentor, uh, who was Myron Stolaroff. And uh, Myron lived into his late 80s. Uh, he was uh, in his late 70s when I first met him. I have the age I am now. <laughs> but uh, he was an old man. I'm not. <laughs> but uh, Myron was the most dedicated meditator I've ever met. He meditated at least an hour every morning. He would take two-week meditation retreats, and he spent a, a significant amount of time dedicated to meditation as he did to psychedelics. And he was one of the first uh, dozen people in the United States outside of the CIA's MK Ultra project to take LSD. And uh, he, he wound up into Buddhism, meditation, and all through LSD. And then he ran the Menlo Park Clinic uh, for, for a number of years that, uh, in Silicon Valley. But he, he is one of the few people that I knew really well who was uh, deep into Buddhist meditation and psychedelics and his his uh practice was to be able to get an intensive psychedelic experience what he called on the natch or i think terence mckenna said on the natch and and he told me that he's been able to touch that a number of times and i found you know i have a a, a casual meditation practice i i spend you know half hour to 45 minutes every morning but it's not anything deep and serious but i have been able to to get myself to that space. And so I see that from, from my perspective, the importance of psychedelics as regards to meditation is they show you a place you can get to and keep working for. And that's just been my own personal experience. Uh, how, how do you see the, the interaction or, or is there a crossover between the two? Oh, for sure. So from my perspective, and I'm speaking both as a Buddhist student, teacher, and then as a non-dual meditation teacher coming from the Kashmir Shaivism tradition of northern India, there's, there's nothing we want to cast out. There's no experience or phenomenon of the universe that we want to cast away. In fact, we want to welcome everything as it points back to the source itself. So there's no information or material that needs to be thrown out. There might need some information that we discern is not valuable, important at the moment, and so the Buddha, and, and, and let me, one more thing, psychedelics give, uh, I'll say that they give us access to three realms of information is the way I conceive of it. One realm of information is the personal, our either unremembered material or unconscious material arises. Then we have the universal consciousness, collective, unconscious kind of material that uh, our ancestors experienced. Um, images, metaphors, and symbols. Ralph Metzner writes a lot about this, about these kinds of symbols that come up in these experiences. And then we might have actual spirit information, living beings or living in the sense of out of the realm of this physical realm that we may access. So people speak about ayahuasca journeys and DMT experiences of really touching other realms of uh, spirithood, spiritness. So using psychedelics gives us this kind of information. It it broadens and widens the puzzle of the universe for us. And it also opens us up to psychic experiences ourselves. So we have maybe a greater clairvoyancy, telepathy. We we might have presentience. We, We start tapping into spirits as a medium or channeler would. So these are kind of natural phenomenons we've seen and studied through the psychedelic experience. Buddha is very clear. He acknowledged these states of being. He acknowledged the, they're called the cities, these telepathic, clairvoyant experiences. He said, just be wary of claiming you do them on your own. Be wary of saying you're the source of them. And also don't brag about them. 
he actually, one of the 227 precepts talks about if you do brag about these psychedelic or psychic experiences, you will get kicked out of the order. Hmm. <laughs> there was a lot of people in India who were doing things like levitating and, you know, predicting weather. And as they were working with the Buddha, he was clear that that's, that's, we're going past that. That arises in deep practice, but yet what's, where's that coming from? And don't identify so much with that. And so I find it, I don't find it uh, to be contrary at all to be a practicing Buddhist and also someone who understands and appreciates what medicine does for us. Um, in the non-dual tradition, what we would say is all of those phenomenon, those experience arise from the source. So if we trace everything that arises, including visions, hallucinations, images, symbols, we trace where they arise from. We ultimately return to stillness and spacious awareness, which is formless. And then we see the arising of this psychic or psychedelic experience. And we trace it right back to the quiet source where it comes from. So either way, we're covered. We're good. We can talk about this as much as you want. <laughs> I guess to, to paraphrase the Buddha is, uh, if you're really enlightened, you don't show off. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, you know, it happens. So what? How does this end your suffering? Or are you really attached to levitating right. or seeing things in nature? He's like, it's a natural gift. Your mind guesses expands. Of course, and that's what psychedelics do. They expand by adding pieces of the puzzle to our understanding of this vast unlimited universe. Right. Even though they, they of course, also add so many questions to our, our lives, too. Uh, one of my, my questions for you is, uh, to, uh, first of all, tell me, I'll tell you a little about our audience. I'd say probably half the audience is 35 and under. Uh, there's a lot of really uh, interested young people who are interested in, in breaking out of the everyday world that we all seem to be, be in. Uh, but my guess is not many of them have been exposed uh, a great deal to meditation. You know, that's something that is uh, the California New Age thing and all. But I, uh, you know, yoga is everywhere in California and it's across the United States and the world, too. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's it's something that I think younger people are maybe not paying as much attention to as uh, they once did when they were younger, because perhaps it's become passe. How, how do you uh, encourage younger people to at least explore the possibility of, of meditation? I have lots of patience. First of all, not patience. I work with, I mean, patience to go. <laughs> go ahead, keep exploring the way you're doing, but watch what happens when you do that. Huh? What I'm busy doing in Boise with my friends and community that are younger um, is encouraging them not to reach for the peak experience after peak experience, thinking that's going to be the thing that heals or tempers them or soothes them, but gives them a glimpse of what is greater than them. And then to, to really create a sustained long-term practice, whatever that is, whether it's meditation, dancing, drumming, you know, something where you have a teacher, a guide, a community, and a language in which you're kind of creating a larger sense of self because you're seeing other people engaging in it, asking similar questions. So my encouragement to the younger community is actually really dedicate yourself to your own personal growth and well-being because I know out of that comes service to other people. And when you are starting to practice using plant meds, you have a container for your experience rather than this just crazy experience that blew your mind, but you don't know what to do with it. You don't have a language for it and no one's guiding you through anything. So how I work with younger people is really encourage them to find their voice, whatever that might be, whether it's music or art or film, but really do it as one would do a spiritual practice with guidance, instruction, community, and language. And then take these experiences of the psychedelic realm and integrate them into those daily practices, whatever they've chosen, because it will only enhance their understanding of music, art, dance, movement, whatever they're doing. Yeah, you know, I'm, I appreciate you mentioning also uh, dance and uh, like drumming circles for, for ways to uh, move your consciousness to a different plane. Uh, I, for one, have found uh, drumming circles to be really amazing to uh, get you out of yourself. And uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want anybody to ever see me, but there are some nights I put my wireless headphones on and I dance here in my bedroom. But, you know, if you've ever been to a festival or a rave or whatever, 
uh, and you've, you've danced to electronic music, uh, usually on some sort of a substance. Well, if you've ever done that later, another time without the substance, you find that you can really get into that same spirit, that, that sense of being. And, uh, and when I do my morning meditation, what I focus on is, uh, well, there's a, a, a movie, it was kind of a depressing movie called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. But I have a light, I experience a lightness of being, not an unbearable one, but I really feel, you know, like I'm floating almost. I'm my, it's not like I'm out of my body. It's like my whole body is there. And so I, I do uh, appreciate you encouraging uh, younger people to perhaps start with uh, something like you, you say that they're already into and uh, turn it into a meditation of sorts. Yeah. I wanted to just um, speak briefly on some research done at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. My colleague and really close friend, Cassandra Veaton, and two other uh, researchers, uh, they interviewed over 50 world religious uh, spiritual teachers. Ram Das from, you know, Jack Cornfield. They, they went to the Sufi tradition, native indigenous traditions, so they did this um, immense um, qualitative interview of over 50 world religious teachers, and they asked what was the process of transformation like in their tradition. And they did a content analysis pulling out all of these themes, which they found roughly eight themes about what transformation looks like, where it starts and where it ends. And it is a spiral that you kind of keep looping. It's not one to another in this dualistic sense, because it can keep happening, this spiral. And the theme, uh, the, what a practice looks like is there's really four or five key points that I, I would love your listeners to, to, to kind of think about because it comes from each spiritual tradition around the world. A practice has all of these components. There's intention. You're setting your intention for what you want to get out of this practice, whether it be peace or safety with yourself or a relationship to God or oneness or dissolving the sense of self and merging with unity consciousness, whatever your intention is, is where you're now steering your ship of your life. And this can be a daily intention. Today, I just intend to rest in awareness. Today, I just intend to feel peace in myself or return to the breath. Or it could be a more deeper heartfelt desire, like I'm looking and I'm longing for community in my life. So intention, the second piece is attention, bringing your mental attention to one thing at one time, whether that's drumming, dancing, singing, meditation, interacting. Intention is one, attention is the second, because you, uh, you can't grow if you're not attending, you can't remember. The third piece is repetition, doing it over and over again. And the fourth piece is getting guidance. So intention, attention, repetition and guidance and then community are the elements of any practice you choose. So when we're talking about dancing on your own with your headphones, your intention might be to connect to your body deeply and let go of self-consciousness, being self-conscious. Um, that might be one you're doing, which I would suggest if we have time, we put on our headphones and dance for all of you. It's like, why not see it? That's amazing. Um, so for whoever's listening, you know, really setting this thing up with intention, attention, repetition, and guidance is really with a foundation of our daily practices. Um, and it's okay to shift your practice after a few years, do something different, whatever is called for, whatever you're attracted to. But I don't suggest skipping from one to one to one, drinking the cream and saying, this is lovely until I have a hard experience and I want to move on to a different teacher, or a different practice. That's not what I want to encourage. Yeah, exactly. The the hard experiences are usually the, the most important ones because that's what you learn the most. And what you just described in those five uh, steps is the uh, design of a very perfect ayahuasca experience. So, you know, it's exactly the same steps. And uh, I, I think that uh, uh, our, our listeners who, uh, and, and this will go out in a podcast and reach a, a lot more people too. And And I hope that they do take a little time to do what you said and, and put some uh, intention in whatever they're doing. If it's dancing or, or meditating, of course, they'd have intention. But whatever it is, I think that uh, uh, the focus, I think you're, one of the uh, uh, phrases I remember you saying in, in a talk I listened to is you talked about the respectful place of being, respect where you are. And uh, I used to be a motivational speaker, and one of my colleagues used to say, wherever you are, 
be there. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I think that if, if uh, some of your practices, that's exactly what you're teaching. Yeah. And where else can we be? Where else does the universe thrive and feel and, and can be felt is right here. And so many people miss, miss the experience they're looking for because they're looking for it cognitively. What, what am I, what, what's going on? It's actually happening in the body. Yeah. The body is sensing it. It's, it's vibrating. It's shimmying. It's shaking. It, there's, there's pain. There's pleasure. And we watch it. It's the universe living through us, particularly and are respecting the moment and actually what we call radical inclusion. Everything is included in the moment. The things we like, dislike, prefer, don't prefer, we're really welcoming them all in because they all point to the same thing. They point to a very beautifully quiet and still formless field that's full of love, that is love, without boundaries, without conditions. And so following any experience in the body lead in including thoughts that trigger sensations in the body lead you right back to well-being and love but it's a practice and intention it's constantly reminding yourself take this experience and lead yourself back to a place of quiet which is full of well-being and love and that's hard for people with trauma who are just have dysregulated you know limbic systems and emotional systems And so the more we intend to feel that, the more we say no to things that trigger us and yes to things that soothe us. So this isn't, I'm trying not to be grandiose. This can be very, this is very practical for those of us with lots of things like PTSD, depression, anxiety. It's not out of reach for anybody. It's in reach more so for people who have more sensations. The issue is so many people don't want to feel this thing. So we numb it, we drug it, we oversex it, we gamble do things to not feel this instead of just really hold the universe that's happening right here in our bodies. So that's another piece of encouragement is learn to feel the universe vibrating through the body in any state, all of it's included and see what happens. You know, uh, you, you touched on something there that uh, is, is uh, been important to me and, and uh, it's the, the, uh, perhaps the the injuries that people might have had without knowing i know uh, a lot of people i've encountered say you know i've i've had this experience on such and such a substance and i felt pure love and all but they have difficulty doing it without a substance or something and and they come to me and say well what's wrong with me why why don't i do this and of course i am not a, a therapist or anything like that and so i usually send them to somebody but my my uh pedestrian, uh, untrained mind says uh, something that struck home when I heard one of your talks. You talked about uh, being raised or being in the home of your grandparents who were Holocaust survivors. And, and the, the download of all that does cause a form of PTSD in everybody. And I've maintained for a long time, I'm a Vietnam vet, and I, I know a lot of families of Vietnam vets who have suffered every much as with PTSD as the service people have. And so uh, today, you know, with, with, uh, look at Puerto Rico, that entire island nation is, is suffering from a form of PTSD. All the black people who are, are witnessing the young boys being shot, you know, th- this is a nation that's awash in PTSD without people realizing that there is something underlying their consciousness that's in the back of their minds that they've never cleared out. So how, how do you go about, I know you've done a lot of work with PTSD and, and this is too broad a question to really focus on, but uh, for somebody that, that maybe isn't even aware that they have it, what are some of the things they should look for that to know that they, they maybe need some professional help? Sure. And first of all, I appreciate you referring because there are a lot of people who do medicine work or like talking about it as that's the end goal, like just do mushrooms and you won't have this anymore. You'll have this, do ayahuasca and you, the, you know, your, the trauma of your childhood will just slip away. And, and that's, I think that's unskillful and irresponsible. I agree. And so it's really important to know, including if you're a spiritual teacher to go, Hey, this is beyond the scope of this practice. Here's something you can do to work with the psychology, the emotional systems that, and your, your neurology, to really uh, amplify and magnify the well-being you're looking for rather than just taking a substance hoping that will dissolve everything. Because, you know, our brains are wired a certain way. The chemicals they're put out, our immune systems are regulated. 
a certain way and trauma and our trauma history informs how our bodies and brains react. So we do want to encourage people who are recognizing things in themselves that don't feel functional to get, to get help and support. There's, that's amazing. If you can reach out and say, Hey, I need help with this so I can be more optimal and function the way I want that that's courageous. And that's showing yourself you care. So I just wanted to put that out there. Um, and, and there are really good benefits to certain plant medicines and also synthetic ones. MDMA, of course, we have lots of studies done now on PTSD with veterans. And, and there is some really good data suggesting that MDMA with PTSD work has some great results, which makes sense because you're taking this drug where you feel blissed out and feeling ecstasis, ecstasy. You're feeling connected to yourself and others. And then you bring up information that's really triggering for your body, but your body's not doing that regular triggering thing. It's not, it's not freaking out. So now here you got some, your trauma narrative, but you don't have the physical body freaking out. So you can go, Oh, I can handle this. I can, I can deal with what my body with, with this narrative because my body's relaxed. I feel connected to other people. There's nothing going on right now but connection and love, and this story is just a story. I mean, I'm simplifying it, but this is really what ultimately happens to someone who's using something like that. So what if we use our own love and awareness and self-care to do the same kind of thing that MDMA can prompt us to? Now, it won't be as strong, but we can get into that state of well-being and love on our own or with guides and with the teacher. And, but your question is, how do you know you might have trauma? Well, first of all, all these things can be inherited. It's in intergenerational transmission of trauma. Your parents' trauma is passed down through epigenetic changes in the DNA. And this is all well-documented. Um, people can read books like it didn't start with you and you know, really look these things up. But people who are traumatized generally are afraid. Are just their body goes into fear mode, you know? I go into Winco sometimes and my trauma response takes over and I look around like, where's the danger coming from? I'm looking for people's faces. What are their emotions? Are they safe? And my wife is like, you know, calm down. Do you need to leave or can you kind of walk around? Okay. And I'm like, no, I got it. I got it. I got it. And then I tend to myself and realize I'm going into that trauma response again. I don't want to be in that state. I'm going to breathe through it. I'm going to love on this body that's tense and I'm going to move forward. That's how we train vets to go from combat back to society, back to, you know, baseball games. So they don't feel like there's insurgents everywhere. They can, they know what their mind is doing and they tend to their body. So for those listeners out there who feel hyper startled and scared all the time, or just looking around and that could be signs of trauma. You know, we don't want to diagnose on a show like this, but, it's just it, it, the first step is really becoming aware of your own body responses when you're living your life. You know, something that I feel you said that was really important just now is because, uh, you know, people like me look up to a professional like you and somebody particularly with all the life experience you've had is, uh, you know, you got your act, you have your act together. <laughs> but to hear that, that you have moments every once in a while, too, where you have to, you know, your wife reassures you or something. I think that's very encouraging for all of us uh non-professionally trained people to realize that even as as much work as you do you're still going to have moments where this could be a difficult time for you yeah it's funny i'm sure my wife's listening in the other room going moments let me <laughs> talk about mike for a second no man it's all the time this body's you know i've got ptsd and i'm, I'm anxious and i'm intense and my patients and students are like no and i'm like come on don't put that on me that's not fair of course i do i have experience we all are going through this. What I have that's a little bit different is a true wholehearted dedication to practice, which then gives the medicine my body and mind need so that I become more transparent for the lightness that you were mentioning. The reason I, I have this vitality is because I've been working so long at going from cloudy to more transparent. Mike is still here, but I'm more in charge of Mike now than I've ever been. And I get to soothe him and care him. And I get reminded by my wife to be like, hey, care for yourself. You're, you're using the tone. So it's really helpful to have people on our team. But it's also the most helpful to have a dedicated practice because eventually I'd like to be transparent and just have that light of source coming right through. And Mike gets that just as much as everybody who comes in contact with him. 
That's that's really wonderful, and and uh, I hope that uh, more people will will pick up on some of the things that you're saying, simply because uh, you know we're we're living in, in a truly unusual time. I mean, this <laughs> you can say that about many periods in history, but uh, I think the the fact that it's quite obvious that the United States system of a government is no longer operational, you know, that, that Congress can't do anything about the insane guy in the White House, that the, the government has become non-functional, and we, the people, uh, can waste a lot of time, you know, politicking and, and r- running for office and helping people, or we can start working on ourselves and then on our, our friends, families, and neighbors. Yeah. And uh, I think that that uh, the action that we need to have in the, in the current age is individual action, personal action. And I do agree with the community, but I'm, I used to be a really big political activist. And uh, most all the causes I've, I worked on are still causes. You know, they've not changed much. They've gotten worse for the most part. And I've, I've spent a lot of money and time doing that. And now I, I really think that it's more important to uh, find individual people here, there, and everywhere who kind of agree with, with the way I like to live and they want to live the same way. And we help each other out with uh, things that we find and ways that we can find to live. And I think that's that's kind of what I picture that that you've uh, essentially been a searcher all your life I mean you haven't just settled on one thing and I'm really pleased to hear you uh, give that advice to other people that they shouldn't get locked into a single thing if it isn't really their vibration anymore right, uh, right. And so I think that's really important that you pointed that out well it's helpful it gives people permission because a lot of us are overly rigid also and stick to things that might not be healthy for us relationships habits with food and drugs you know, we're, we're always feeling the disconnect, but still going forward in the relationship or with the food or with the drug and, or with the teacher. Now, you know, I did spend eight years in one school and 14 in another and 20 some in the yogic world. Uh, but I have been really lucky to meet teachers along the way that I found myself resonating with. And then I would ask the other teacher, do you mind if I go here? Because this is what's pulling. And because those teachers understand how the universe flows and things shift, they didn't take that personal. They said, yes, please go explore who you are now becoming with this new teacher. And so for all of us who are, and I'm no longer seeking, I don't feel like I'm looking for anything. I feel very much at home. I do keep refining myself. I'm not done. Mike will not be done. I don't know how long it takes for this guy, but I do not. I'm at home. I'm resting. I'm not looking for anything anymore. I don't have many questions. And when I do, what I do is ask my teacher and then they give me a practice that might take one to two years to actually embody, become embodied. So the question I ask isn't an intellectual answer I'm seeking. It's a felt embodied experience I'm seeking. And so I ask my teacher how to have that felt embodied experience And then they lead me to a practice that I dedicate to until it's there. And I'm like, oh, I got it. I understand. And then it drops away. The question's not there. So I don't want to encourage skipping that part. You know, I want to encourage people staying with it to answer their questions. Eventually, there might not be seeking, just being. And being does all the work. Being can do the work for us. I, I'm glad to hear you say that, and and I, I didn't mean to imply that you jump from one thing to another because eight years, twelve years, you know, twenty years—that's a lot of time. Uh, but what I was uh, commenting on is the fact that you weren't so rigid that you said uh, I've got the right way. And there, there are teachers like that, as you know. Yeah, yeah. My joke—I I talked over you, but I said I've done too many drugs to be that rigid. I, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, like. <laughs> well, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that Terrence McKenna says about doing psychedelics is that if you want to be a psychedelic person, you have to accept the fact that you're never going to have all the answers. There's always going to be a lot more questions than answers, and you have to live with, with questions, you know? Right. Yeah, so I appreciate you noticing the non-rigidity. I'm, I mean, I'm working on that as a personality trait, you know, letting people be late and not being so tight about that. But in terms of my relationship to the universe, well, I, I, it's all a mystery. I am just watching and waiting and I send out my intentions and it comes back in ways that I can't predict, but I can see, Oh, here's the form it's coming back to me. in now, so I've left my rigidity with the universe quite a while ago. 
That's that's really a beautiful place to live. Uh, you know, you you mentioned three uh, things in one of your talks: uh, perseverance, awareness, and vulnerability. Would you like to talk about any of them? Yeah, yeah. It's presence, awareness, and vulnerability. That's funny. As I, I didn't know what you were going to ask me tonight, but that's one thing I really enjoy talking about: presence, oh, awareness, and vulnerability. I wanted to I wanted to really make it as simple as I could so I can experience it as I'm talking. So I don't want to be verbose about it, but each one is a very unique kind of experience. Vulnerability to me is our willingness to say the truth of what we're experiencing right now. And without judgment and without blame, that means being vulnerable. Like I'm hurt. I'm upset. I'm angry. I'm feeling something in my body. Something's not right for me to be, willing to speak our deeper truths for the human truth I'm, I'm saying the one we're experiencing because once we start being vulnerable there's a real freedom that starts happening for us we start recognizing i don't have to hide anymore uh, there's a liberation that comes with speaking our truth and we need to be vulnerable to speak our truth but something else happens too so i'm always speaking on the relative human side and then that absolute consciousness side what happens on the human side is we learn to be um, open-hearted. We share who we are. We connect deeper with other people. We start nurturing ourselves because we're saying what's true for us. But vulnerability also starts letting, it's like opening a portal to that other side, which is truth itself, which is light, which is love itself, that can only come through us through presence when we're vulnerable. So vulnerability is like, opening up super Superman shirt and we see what's underneath that, this kind of empowered radiant symbol of his more deeper self and being present, not just being present, but exuding presence, which is a lightness and love and kindness that comes forward can only happen when we're really vulnerable. So the first thing is to be vulnerable. Um, that doesn't mean put ourselves at risk. You know, when I talk to vulnerability to my veterans, they say, I'm not fucking doing that. I'm not going to, you know, no way, bro. Like, I'm not vulnerable. That's that leads to being weak. And I'm like, not don't put yourself in a place where you're going to get hurt. Emotional vulnerability starts letting our light forward. And so presence for me represents the source of light and love. And I don't mean that in a new age way. I really mean like when you're with a person who's full of presence, you feel good. You feel kind. You feel rested and relaxed. So for me, presence is like the portal between our human and that kind of divine conscious world that's behind all of this. And awareness, there's two levels of awareness. One is the human awareness. Where, what are we aware of? Emotions, sensations, thoughts, perceptions, beliefs. And then pure awareness which is the container that holds all of this. It's the formless field from which everything arises and returns. So presence, awareness, and vulnerability all work together to really integrate the human and that kind of beyond human right in the present moment. And, and you know, I totally agree with you that if, if most people would be that way, they would certainly uh, get along a lot better. Oh, it's just so full of love to be not only be like, well, just be present with one another. Look at each other's eyes. There's a usual discomfort. Sit through the discomfort and start resting in the presence of another human being. And what tends to happen is the personality dissolves a little bit and being meets being. As my teacher says, Richard Miller, love loves love. <laughs> it's beautiful it's radiant i try to greet everybody this way and it's not effortful i just look in the eyes and i drop the personality a bit and just allow being to meet their being and all of a sudden there's this connection and heat maybe oxytocin comes a little bit we feel a little bonded and now we're in the presence of love that is beyond the human conditional love of attraction or desire or wanting from or giving to, but this truly deep sense of love that's beyond us, expanded well beyond us, now permeates through us as presence, being to being. If we did this more often, uh, imagine the fields around our communities that would start being, being felt. 
Yeah, you know, as as you you just said that the it radiates. I, I know I've had experiences where uh, I've made eye contact with people, and and not just women, but men and women, to where there's something about them and our our eye contact that you just know that you both feel the same way, and and it's a radiation of love reverberating back and forth between you, and and. It, it 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 goes unsaid most times. I mean, especially men on men, we don't like to talk about things like that. But I've had contacts with 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 essentially strangers I met for the first time. We've looked in each other's eyes, and it's like we knew each other forever. And uh, I think that that goes back to the root of the human experience. Yeah, yeah. And I would I'd say you do know each other. You are each other. There is no other in that moment. It is love, loving love. And you may have a person. You might be cloaked in Lorenzo's body, face, and personality. But what's fueling? What's the source of that? And the source has never changed, never moved. So source is coming through both of us. Love is loving each other through the cloak of our personalities and bodies and temperament. And we can see that when we're really in presence with one another. And and we lose our fear of being judged and things like that. And, you know, as you said earlier, fear is really what divides most of us giving into that fear not and there are times when that fear is founded when you like hey this is a message i want to listen to i'm getting out of this relationship right and there are other times fear is not founded and we have to be really conscious of discerning the difference there so that when we're sitting face to face with someone and the fear of being judged arises we know we are just looking at we are looking at the same person having the same experience right yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny that all all of us, I think, want to create a better world, want to create better societies, and yet it's it's hard to know how to do it. How do you how do you how do you start building a community among people that uh, when when you don't really have one? Like you you've got a community going now that you've uh, spent years putting together. How do you somebody that's just uh, you know a young guy or a young lady who's uh, finding out some of these things for the first time and they want to find some more people and maybe talk about these things. Uh, how, how do you engage people to start building a little community of uh, say people that want to meditate together? I would say first, just know other people want the same thing. If your impulse is arising, it's coming from the universe asking you to, to do this thing because other people will be meeting you. You're going to be contributing to your own well-being and others' well-being by following the impulse to create or be in community. So trust yourself. There's a fear there that I'm not good enough. I won't be liked. I might be rejected. I'm going to embarrass myself. All of these fears come up pretty regularly for people who are looking to start engaging. The, the, one of the easiest ways in is find your most passionate your most passionate gift or the thing you like to do a lot, whether that be bike riding or playing cello and really start going the thing you're most comfortable with because then you don't have to learn something new and go with that kind of um, the, the tension of learning a new thing while learning about new people. So the first thing I would suggest is just follow what your passion already is inviting you to do, whether that's music, dancing, drumming, meditation, and Every place I've been in the world has communities that are doing these things, whether it was Thailand and Peace Corps. Um, I, I meet groups all over the country. I've met people in Canada that all have these different kind of varieties of groups, people meeting each other just where they're at. So really allow your passion to speak for you, follow that and engage with groups. I just tend to be good at forming groups. So I'm like, hey, I want to do this. I'm going to invite a few people. And if it's wanted, it'll grow. And that's how my sangha, my community was developed. It was here in Boise after Trump was elected. I said, how do we work with discomfort in ourselves? How do we keep working for justice or for, for, for consciousness in our society? We have to be with ourselves first. So I just did this talk. Um, find what you really love and join people doing it. Start because you, we all need it. We need you. I need you. We all need each other to step up and go, here's a group I want to form or join. You know, that's something I, I realized a long time ago, what you just said, is that I'm not different from anybody else. I feel the same thing. And when, when especially if somebody 
irritates me. I got I have to stop and think, okay, what is it about me that they're reflecting that's irritating me? Because uh, I, I think we can all be much more successful in life if we realize that, that what we want is also what other people want. And then we can find ways to, to get them together. Oh. Uh, I, I want to mention uh, and show you this picture before before we run out of, completely run out of time tonight. Uh, I'm going to put it up on the screen. This is a picture of Myron Stolaroff. Uh-huh. And uh, when I would stay with him, he lived up in the high desert. Uh, and in the mornings, I'd get up early and walk. And when I'd come back from my walk, I'd see Myron sitting there on his deck staring at the high Sierras. And he'd sit there for over an hour every morning meditating. And he was he was in the 80s when I took this picture. And Myron became really my psychedelic mentor, and he uh, he had a, a habit or a, a whatever he, whenever he met somebody new and he was striking up a conversation, the first thing he'd ask him is, "What do you think about psychedelics?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> Back in the seventies and eighties, that was kind of <laughs> iffy, you know. Uh, today, uh, I encourage people if they want to start that conversation to say, uh, "What do you think about the fact that Johns Hopkins is studying magic mushrooms now?" Things like that. But I would add another thing now that people can also say on, on a much even uh, easier plane is, uh, what do you think about meditation? I've been thinking about starting it myself. Have you ever done it? Just starting a conversation like that with a stranger can lead to amazing things. Uh, some people who I just met casually as strangers are now important in my life, you know, and I just happen to strike up a conversation with them. So I think things like what you're saying, engaging with people, finding a way to engage with them. And it doesn't have to be our community here in the psychedelic salon is largely interested in, in uh, psychoactive compounds that alter your consciousness, but meditation also alters your consciousness as does drumming and running and all kinds of exercising. So what we're talking about is uh, shifts of consciousness and what you're really teaching people to do in, in my estimate is teaching them how to permanently uh, start shifting this consciousness and not, keep slipping back into old habits. Right. That's the most important piece. And I am an advocate of plant medicines uh, because they give us glimpses of things and add, again, add pieces to the puzzle. And I'm more of an advocate of love and loving yourself and then radiating that outward toward others because there's nowhere else it can go. Um, and doing this long-term and knowing you can glimpse at a person and stare into them and they're needing that so much. Each of us needs to feel connected and seen. And, you know, we have that experience in the psychedelic realm. We're with trees. We're with bugs. How many of us have been looking at ants going, that is the most divine, fascinating thing I've ever seen. And then having an experience of moving with the ant and becoming in harmony with that thing. Why does that have to end after we're done with that experience? What could we do that would facilitate a sustained relationship to everything around us so that it doesn't drop away when the meds wear off? That's the gift we can give ourselves and the world around us. And that's, and that's what people mean when they talk about doing the work. You know, that, that people I think of as psychedelic tourists are ones that will take uh, 50 or 100 mics of acid one time in their life and they say they've done LSD. But uh, the people who do the work will will have a few bad trips. They'll come back and spend a year or two thinking about it and maybe never do it again or maybe get the courage up to do something else. But that's doing the work. And and uh, I'll, I'll admit, I, I came to these substances because I enjoyed them. There's pleasure in it, too. But once the pleasure kind of you go through that pretty quickly and you realize that if I'm going to keep doing this, I'm going to have to uh, put some effort into it and bring something home. Yes. For us, for our families, our communities, our planet. And then there's work to be done. We see things about ourselves that it's time to refine, start caring for and working on because we, we deserve it. We deserve to be taken care of. And we're the only ones who can really do that in the end. So that's what psychedelics can lead us to is a care and love that's so deep that we know I need to do my work now so that I can be the best of myself for myself and other people. 
And, and I'm not advocating that everybody in the world use psychedelics. I think that it's a very small percentage of people who are really going to be drawn to them and, and willing to do the work. But those are important people. Uh, because of people who have been drawn to psychedelics, we now know about DNA, for example, you know, uh, the Internet and computer revolution. And, and uh, a lot of science has come out of, uh, you know, people who have uh, had a uh, uh, psychedelic experience or practice. So there, there are uh, uses for it. And I think mainly that what I would like to uh, accomplish uh, with, with this little podcast, uh, not this particular one, but all of them, is to get people to not necessarily say, oh, I'm going to try psychedelics, but to say, well, I understand why people are using them. And they are good for some people. And they're not just uh, demon drugs like the opiates uh, are, you know. So uh, I think that uh, it's very refreshing to see some a professional like yourself who has a, a wide range of experience to not totally just negate them, uh, particularly because you've dealt with a lot of veterans who I'm sure had some drug issues. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I really wish they, I mean, it would have been great if they could do the right kind of drug experiences, the healing ones, the ones that are that tend to the soul and help forgive, help, help them have self-forgiveness, forgiveness of others. And the plant meds we're talking about really can lead us to those experiences, of course, those psychedelic experiences do naturally kind of tend to that inner soul garden. And that's where love and tenderness and forgiveness, compassion are, are, are already in bloom, already in bloom. Right. You know, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious here tonight. Usually uh, <laughs> the people who join us are pretty talkative and they're always joining in and, and nobody has uh, asked a question or raised their hand or anything. What's up with you guys tonight? <laughs> I have a question. Okay. Let's let, go ahead, please. Um, I mean, meditation and psychedelics, um, uh, how do you kind of integrate psychedelics into a meditation, um, practice because of the drastic experiences between the two? Mm -hmm. Um, is there any kinds of recommendations you'd give? Well, you know, I come from a meditation background, although I have a strong plant med history and background too, uh, Meditation for me would be the container because it gives you awareness, attention regulation. It gives you spaciousness around all kinds of phenomenon in your own body and mind that are constantly rising. So when you have a psychedelic experience, you're both in it and actually watching it. It is a fascinating place. And I do this in my yoga nidra meditation practice. I'm fully asleep. I'm snoring, but watching it. So when you're at that place in your meditation practice where you can watch your body sleeping and snoring and even dreaming but watching it, you can also do that in your psychedelic experience. Now you're greater consciousness. You're the greater awareness that's holding everything. So you're at once the experience, the experiencer, and the witness of all of it. So I always recommend really getting attuned to your meditation practice. And if you're going to have a plant med experience, uh, to really in, get into it, have it, but also play with that witness at the same time. Because coming out of that experience, you still get to play witness no matter what happened. You're, you're essentially saying you observe the observer. Yeah, it's you can do that. And then now you start doing that in your normal waking life too. And right. sometimes the, the dose is too high and you, you're just blown. You can't sustain consciousness, which I would say, I wonder if what, what if is, it, is that the right dose to take? It depends on the intention. What is the intention of the, of the person trying to integrate meditation and psychedelics? And that's where intention plays such an important role because you can intend what this experience is about. You can't call in what happens, but you can intend and tell the universe, I'd like this to happen. I'd like to keep greater consciousness awake and aware no matter what my experience is. You know, as, as, as a lawyer, I know we really have to be careful about some of the things we say, and I'm not going to ask you uh, if you would recommend anything, but of the, the uh, patients that you've had uh, that have used uh, a psychedelic or two in their meditation practice, are there any psychedelics that they have used that seem to be more effective than others? You know, I'm in, I'm in uh, Boise, Idaho. We are conscious here, actually. It's an amazing group of people. I have a lot of ex-Mormons coming to me. And so there, there are greater amounts of people not having had that experience than, of course, when I lived in California. Um, 
I would say, and, and, I, and I, I'm a licensed professional. I do not recommend taking plant medicine. I can't prescribe it. Only people who can legally take it are those in the studies at Johns Hopkins and other areas, you know, working with maps. Right. But people do tell me of their experience and they've heard my podcast and will seek me out for integration care. And a lot, a lot more people have uh, more healing experiences with psilocybin or magic mushrooms and a lot more deregulating or like kind of disorienting experiences with acid and DMT. And ayahuasca is an interesting one. Um, a lot of people have powerful experiences that they feel good for a few weeks after, but then dissolve, you know, return to exactly where they started. And that's not one I, I, I you know, that that's, a, these are all different categories of experiences. So psilocybin seems to be the more gentle one that opens people up to the more tender healing aspects of things. That's what I've heard. Well, what I'll, I'll add my own personal experience. And as I said, I'm not a, a, you know, a serious professional meditator. I, I, I spend a half hour or so every, every day doing it. But over the years, I've learned that I don't like to have any substance, even marijuana in me when I'm meditating. I like to, I like to have that experience without any substances because uh, the substances kind of distract me from other things because of so many experiences I've had. So uh, my, my personal recommendation is, is don't use anything when you meditate because that's the purpose of meditating is to get into your mind yourself. So uh, yes. I just wanted to throw that out because I know that uh, in your practice, particularly with veterans, you would have uh, come across a lot of people who are, uh, you know, using substances. Yeah. And there's, and there's appropriate times to say, Hey, let's not do this today. It's not the right time. And I've had patients come in high and I can tell immediately the difference. Even if I can't smell it, I'm like, uh, you're, you're there. The consciousness shifts, you know, there's a dulling, there can right. be an enhancing factor too, but really the work we need to do, we want crystal clear consciousness and awareness and so if that gentleman who asked me the question was wondering, do you, do you, should you integrate psychedelics and meditation? I'm of your school. And I think, I mean, you can, people can do that and they can witness what happens in that experience and see when you're doing it without and with what's different in your mind. But we're, I'm not going for experiences. I'm going to be the witness of experience. And so if something's in my way of becoming the witness and being awareness, I don't want to do that because my intention is to dissolve into spacious awareness um, rather than just look for one particular kind of experience. Well, you know, that, that also gels with my mentor, Myron Stolaroff, who, who was uh, very much into uh, psychedelics, particularly LSD and meditation. And he never mixed the two. Uh, he told me that the, the uh, reason that he, he occasionally still did LSD was so that he could remember that space and then he'd shoot for it when he was meditating. And I asked him if he ever made it and he smiled and he says, Oh, there's a few times I've touched in there. So, uh, that's what Terrence said on the Natch. So it, it can be done. And like I say, he was, uh, he was the pinnacle for me of both meditation and psychedelics and he never mixed them. Uh, he was serious about both of them. So that would be my, my advice until somebody gets really good at both of them <laughs> to, to use them one at a time. Mm -hmm. Well, we're, we're about out of time here tonight, Mike, Mike. And, and, uh, by the way, I, I love calling you Mike. That was my little brother's name and, uh, he died in 2010, but I still think of him every day. So, uh, it's nice to have another Mike to talk to. Uh, you've been uh, a great older brother. <laughs> we're, we're about to wrap up here. Is there, is there, uh, any closing words you'd like to leave with us or words of wisdom? Oh man, don't put that on. <laughs> That's an awful thing to put on me. I know. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> oh, I'm just, I'm just really, really honored to be on your show and to be with you and all, all everybody on here. Uh, I, I didn't know what to expect and I didn't know if we'd get more questions. If people do have questions, they're welcome to reach out. MichaelSapiro.com is my website. They can do that. Happy to answer questions or field uh, comments. Um, oh, I, the way I love to end everything is just reminding us how precious we are, how precious this human experience is, that we've been given a very unique set of ideas and beliefs in our brain and our neurology and our immune systems and our body is so unique. And yet we're all grounded in the same source. So it's both we're coming from the same place and we're absolutely unique manifestations of that. And to take yourself 
and who you are seriously, because it might be the only time this form in this way ever exists again. And we're all so precious and have so much to give to one another. Oh, I feel teary just thinking that, that we're all so precious. I meet every being is the most precious being I've ever met. Um, and to treat yourselves well with care and tenderness because we're so, we're not special in the sense of narcissistic special. We're special because we're so unique and only you can do what you're meant to do. So tend to yourself, love on yourself, play with meds if you need to and practice meditation, find a practice to nourish, nourish and nurture who you truly are because we need you. We need you. That's all I'll end with. Well, that's that's a perfect ending, and and I I don't know how anybody could have done it better because uh, we often do forget how truly unique human beings are and and what a role we have in the universe. So uh, let's hope that we all leave kind footprints behind us here. That'd be lovely. Well, well, listen, everybody, I appreciate you being here tonight, even though there was a dearth of questions. I can't understand that. <laughs> next, next week, uh, Kevin, we're going to be here with, uh, with uh, your colleague, and we'll be talking about the extended DMT experience. Uh, the week after that, uh, Eric Davis is going to be here with us. So uh, it'll be a few weeks before we get back to just the general uh, psychedelic salon where we all hang out and, and, uh, and jaw a little bit. But uh, I really uh, think that we get a lot more out of these nights when somebody like Michael is so kind to give us his time. So thanks again, Mike. I appreciate it. And everybody, until next week, keep the old faith and stay high. Good <laughs> night, everybody. Good night. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>